One of my favorite things is sleeping. In fact, I'm going to go do that. No. And, and there's nothing better than feeling that uh, air of tiredness sort of sweep over you and, then, and to be able to satisfy that by getting into a bed and enjoying a sleep. When I lie in bed at night, I often just go, oh, yeah, it's just, it's a great feeling. It's a place of comfort. One of the nights that I don't do well in my sleep cycle is the night before Easter. My mind is going. The, the message is going through my mind. I'm excited about getting up early. I love Easter sunrise service. It's just like one of the best things all year round. I look forward to it. I live for it. And so I'm antsy the night before. Now you already have to get up early to go to the sunrise service. So going to bed late and not being able to sleep doesn't do well. But I look forward to that night, sun, that Sunday night. I mean, I hit the sack, man, and I'm out. Lights are out. My lights are out. And uh, it, it's a great feeling. Well, last Sunday night was one of those nights that it was, it, it was just didn't get much sleep. So really two, three, four at the most hours of sleep, and then Easter, and then sunrise, and the services here. And so I was pretty tuckered out. I was really looking forward to getting a good night's sleep last night before the message is today, three in the morning and then one tonight. And uh, looking forward to it. And, and again, the, the feeling was great, just to slip inside the sheets and lay down and lights went out and my lights went out and I'm just sawn logs, you know. About one in the morning, I hear my son's footsteps. Along with a few noises, groans, and of course we shot out of bed and he had gotten sick all over his bed, all over the floor, pajamas, two pillows, a few toys, and it really stunk. <laughs> and I didn't want to get up. And I was comfortable. I got church tomorrow. But we got up. As Jamie was singing her songs and talking about her kids, I thought about Nathan. And I thought, you know, a parent will gladly get up, right, moms and dads? When your kid's sick, it's not like you run, kid, what's wrong with you? What are you doing throwing up? You don't do it now. Schedule this event. Time this, you know. Uh, maybe next week, three in the afternoon. Okay, we'll write that in the calendar. It doesn't work that way. Life is unpredictable. And a parent will gladly sacrifice and leave his comfort zone or her comfort zone to help that child, to bathe that child, make that child feel good. You lose sleep, so what? That's just part of the sacrifice. But you do it joyfully, willingly. Pray for me tonight that, uh, <laughs> and I was thinking about God. In Jesus Christ, you have a picture of the good shepherd who, like the story of Jesus Christ, leaves the 99, leaves the place of watching, and goes out and searches for the lost. 
though it's inconvenient, though that lamb might be caught in a sandstorm or in a bog, the good shepherd will leave his place of comfort to seek after that lost sheep and gladly put that lamb on its shoulders and bring it back. That's a picture of your God who loves you so much. And when you fall and when you blow it, you're not an inconvenience to God. God doesn't look at you and go, you dumb Christian, you ought to be perfect by now. Oh, he picks you up on his shoulders and he brings you back. And that's what Jesus has done, and he repeatedly does. He did it the first time when he left heaven. Talk about a comfort zone. Heaven. What an assignment. Become a human. Oh, great. Come to earth. Yeah, fabulous. Be a human. Suffer. Be rejected. But in doing so, win back the world. And anyone who would come, you can bear them back. And he repeatedly does that, right? He looks for the lost sheep, the rejects, so to speak. And tonight the story ahead of us is a great story because we see Jesus going to people, calling them to himself, and then also commissioning them later on for service who would be rejected by the world. And I hope that this is an encouragement to you tonight because we're going to see this little cameo of the life of Matthew the tax collector who sat at that receipt of customs up in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. We see Jesus also finding that man with the withered hand in the synagogue, moved by human compassion, moved by divine compassion because he saw human suffering, reaching out. And then we see him taking the disciples and turning them into apostles. <laughs> what a group they were. We get tonight, actually, if we get to it, and I hope we do, the first ordination service in history. Uh, wasn't in Oregon present. Uh, it wasn't full of pomp and circumstance and ceremony. It was very simple. But Jesus picks people, and then he pushes them out to be his ambassadors. And I like that. And that's something only God can do. God has chosen all of us, but actually only God can ordain a person. I've heard people say, well, I want to go to seminary so that they can ordain me. God help you if they do and God doesn't. Only God can truly ordain. Now, man can ratify and agree upon what God has done. We can uh, look at your life and say, yes, we see the evidence of the gifts of God in your life. You've been faithful. And we ratify what God has done in your life. And so we lay our hands on you and we commission you for this work. But it must be God that does it. And we see here tonight a beautiful and encouraging story of God reaching out, selecting people, and then using them. I have always been encouraged by the basis of God's choice. Now think about it. Who is God looking for to use? Is God out there looking the world over for PhDs? Now I'm not down on PhDs. I'm not down on seminary. Don't think I have an anti-education bent. I love school. I am still taking courses. But you don't impress God with those things. God doesn't look at a master of divinity degree and go, impressive. I'm really impressed. Now I can finally use you, now that you are a divine master. I mean a master of divinity. I'll go ahead and use you. God looks for available people. And the, it's humorous to find out who God picks. 
It really is, well, it's a testimony to his grace. It really is. It's a testimony to God's grace, not to human achievement. Abraham, come on. He's called the father of faith. The father of faith. He's the guy that left Canaan and went down to Egypt because he didn't trust that God to provide for him. And he's the great example of faith. He's the guy who, together with his wife, decided that it's impossible for old people to have kids. Well, I'll go into my handmaiden, Hagar, or my wife's handmaiden, and we'll have a kid by her. That's probably what God meant. We'll have to help him out. He's the father of faith, yet God calls him that in the Scripture. Moses? God, why would you pick Moses? You need a spokesman. He stutters. And you want to send him to the king of the world, Pharaoh, in Egypt, and stand in there and go, let my people go, 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 go. He had a speech impediment, and God called him as a spokesman. It's humorous. And what about Gideon? I love that story. Gideon was so scared of the Midianites that instead of threshing the wheat up on the threshing floor, which is always on the top of the mountains on the rock floors, he was hiding in the valleys, threshing his wheat at the wine press. And God sent an angel to him. And probably the angel was giggling when he said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. <laughs> Gideon probably looked around. <laughs> Who else is here? Are you talking to me? Me, a mighty man of valor? But God picked him to stand in front of the Midianite army. 35,000 or 135,000 of them with just a few hundred men. So that God would get the glory. The basis of God's choice is encouraging to me. And if God, and I mean this, can pick and use Peter, Andrew, Nathaniel, Bartholomew, and the others, God can use you. Believe me, he can. I don't know what image you have of these great saints and men of God, but they were ordinary dudes with lots of flaws Lots of blemishes. But God got the glory when he used them. And I am convinced that God picks people who are the least likely candidates so that when a great work is accomplished, people say, it's got to be God. <laughs> and then he gets the glory. And once again, that beautiful scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You see your calling, brethren, how that not many mighty, not many noble after the flesh are called. Now, he's not ruling out mighty people and noble people and educated people. God does use the educated and the mighty and the noble. But they happen to be the exception, not the rule. Paul was an exception. He was brilliant. But Paul even noticed, you see your calling. There's not many mighty, not many noble after the flesh. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise so that no flesh would glory in his presence. Sometimes you feel, I know you do, because I feel it too. I have felt it. You feel your life is an unfinished canvas. 
You look at it. Here's my life. Oh, there's paint on it, but it sure looks blotchy. And I have no idea what that blob is, is going to turn into. Now, the artist sees the end result. Artists have vision. They can see what it's going to look like in the end. An artist can take a beat-up piece of wood, and everybody would say, well, it's just a useless piece of wood. It's a block of wood. It's of no value. But the artist can see the end result, and he fashions it according to what he sees before he does it. There's a great story that a huge marble stone, uncut, was sent from the quarries at Carrara, Italy, to Florence. And the great masters were to come and look at this stone to see if they would purchase it to create something. And the great sculptor Donatello, this is not the ninja turtle, this is (laughs) the artist. It's funny, though, you tell kids today, Donatello, yeah, the ninja turtle. They have no idea that there was actually an artist named that. Donatello looked at it, rejected it, because it had a huge flaw running right through it, diagonally. He said it's of no value. And others looked at it and rejected it. Michelangelo, again, not the Ninja Turtle, the artist, came by, looked at it, and said, it's perfect. And the others didn't understand. They said, everybody has rejected it. Why would you pick it? He said, there's an angel inside, and I must free it. That's how he saw that stone. There's an angel within, and I must free it. And he created David. And I have seen that statue over in Rome. David, his best and finest craftsmanship of stone. Now, what if that stone could speak? You're one of God's living stones, the Bible says. Sometimes you look at your life and go, man, I'm chipped and flawed everywhere. God says, oh, but I see an angel. And Just give me your life. Relinquish control. Watch what I can do. But there's a cut. Oh, I know. I'm just going to cut you off right here, and then I'm going to make this. And... But God sees it all in advance. Not only is the basis of God's choice encouraging, the variety of God's choice is encouraging. I look at the disciples, and I was reading about Matthew. We're about to get to him. Believe me, this is all introductory, but it's on my heart. <laughs> Matthew. Peter, I'm looking at these guys, thinking of their lives. They were so different from one another. And you know what I love about God? Is that God loves variety. God doesn't have a mold when he saves a person. He didn't say, okay, you're a Christian man, and I'm going to save you, give you a huge Bible, put wingtips on you, uh, a shirt, a goofy-looking tie. You've got to cut your hair just so. And then everybody's got to look like they work at IBM or something. You know, God has such variety. One of the things that scared me about becoming a Christian is that, that mold mentality. Because I saw so many Christians and I thought, whatever I become, oh God, please. I don't want to be like that. I wanted to be me. I wanted to be redeemed me, but I wanted to be me. And God loves variety. It's evident. Look at the landscape around the United States. Aren't you glad it's not all mountains or all desert or all plains that you drive around and you see variety? You look that direction, it's flat. You look that direction, mountains. And so it is in the church. And God has placed members of the body of Christ to complement one another. And then he has placed us together on a team that we would capitalize on those differences, learn to get along, 
and learn to maximize those differences for his glory. That's a, a, a picture of the 12 disciples. It's a microcosm of the church. Apostles called, or disciples called to be apostles. Okay. Now we get to Matthew. And I would say, in verse 27 of chapter 5, that if there was a contest held in Galilee of the most hated man in Galilee, I bet Matthew would win the prize because he had an ill-favored occupation. He worked for the IRS. It was a lot worse to be a tax collector those days than these days, though I have never met anyone who loves tax collectors in any generation. Nobody likes to pay taxes. Nobody likes to pay anything. But in those days, tax collectors were barred from public worship. Tax collectors were not allowed by Jews to enter the synagogues. The Greek writer Lucian ranked tax collectors along with adulterers and murderers. Why? Because collecting taxes lent itself to abuse. And this is how it worked. The Roman Empire governed this part of the world. And they would assess an area and then sell that area to the highest bidder. If you had the money, you could buy a plot of land from the Roman government. You were in charge. You collect its taxes. You rule it, in that sense, financially. The government wanted you to give the assessed value of that area at the end of the year to the Roman government. Anything above and beyond that that you could extract from the people, sky's the limit. And here's the problem. There were no newspapers. There was no CNN or radio or cyberspace in those days. So communication between districts and cities was very limited. So people really didn't know the skinny on how much was lawful or normal to pay. And so people would come in who were very wealthy. They'd buy the area. They'd get as much as they could. They would line their pockets with the rest. And that was a tax collector. Sold out, in this case, to Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee. Now, Matthew, to make it worse, what was Matthew's original name? Levi, not the gene maker, from the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. Now, if all the facts we know about him are correct, he was probably a preacher's kid turned sour, probably in line of the tribe of Levi to be a priest, but instead he's a tasseler. Man, he's a traitor. He was hated. Now, Jesus finds him. And calls him. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector. And don't you know when Jesus sees people, he sees them differently. He didn't look at him and go, you creep. He thought, I love you, Matthew. You might be a creep now. But what I can do with a creep, <laughs> if I save him and change him, is awesome. A tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. I picture Matthew, Levi, as sort of a lonely heart because of his occupation. Wealthy, but, but isolated. Couldn't be in the synagogue. He was up in Galilee and probably at the edge of every crowd that Jesus preached to in Capernaum. 
Because he was in Capernaum. That's where the tax office was at. At that road marker, the Via Maris. The way that connected the trade routes from one part of the world to the other. And he probably heard Jesus preach saying, Come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And this guy is sort of an outcast thinking, Man, I, I long for that. But everybody would scorn him, walk by him, reject him, and pay their money, probably slap it down and leave the tax booth angry. But they couldn't do anything about it. Rome ruled with the iron fist. But Jesus Christ looks for rejects. I'm so glad. I am so glad. Because when I gave my heart to Jesus Christ in July of 1973, I asked him, what do you want me for? You're God. What kind of a deal are you getting that you would give your son to come to earth to die for me so that you could buy my life and use it? You're not getting a good deal, God. But I'd be a fool to argue with you because I'm getting a great deal. And if you want me, take me. I'm yours. You know, so many people think about coming to Christ the opposite. They say, oh, I have to give up so much, man, to come to Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, big sacrifice. Hell, you have to give that up. I'll feel really bad for you. (laughs) A life of alienation from God. Wandering in aimlessness without the direction of the Creator who made you. Oh, yeah, you're giving up a lot. No, Jesus gave up a lot for you. And He's looking for you. And He came up to Matthew, and probably Matthew's jaw dropped, because he knew who Jesus was. He said, Matthew, follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. I think Matthew gave up more in terms of worldly position than all the other disciples. Yes, they had fishing businesses, but they could go back to their fishing business. In fact, they tried to do that. Matthew couldn't. If you worked for the IRS and the Roman government, and you quit and did what he did as a turncoat to the Roman government, they wouldn't let you back. He burned his bridges when he followed Jesus. So he gave up a lot. So you can deride him all you'd like, but he gave up a lot when he followed Jesus. And he followed him. And Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. But their scribes and the Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now Matthew did a very natural thing. It's sort of like a going away party. It's a feast. It was very common. Invite all your friends over. You're making a break. You're going to follow this itinerant preacher named Jesus. What do you do? Invite the rest of the gang, all the tax collectors. After all, Jesus called me. He might just call them. Everybody rejects tax collectors. If Jesus accepted me, then I'm going to invite every tax collector buddy I know over to dinner. Let's just see what will happen. It is very natural for a person who has been changed by Jesus Christ to want to bring others in, to tell others about it. It's so exciting to follow Jesus Christ. He changes you so radically. He gives you such a sense of peace. It's natural to say, hey, come here. I want you to meet Jesus. 
He can do a lot for you if you follow him and give him your life. And what Matthew does is the same thing that Jesus Christ did. Jesus went out and compelled people to come. Matthew goes out and compels people to come over to his house to have a feast. That's evangelism. And that speaks to us of our evangelism, to bring people to Christ, to compel them. And if you've got something in your life that's worth living for, it would be very, very natural for you to want to tell others about it. Matthew did. So they all came over. A bunch of tax collectors in that house. And these guys had the worst reputation in Galilee. And uh, then the good guys, the goody two-shoes were there, the scribes and the Pharisees. And, of course, they loved to murmur because they're more righteous than everybody, they thought. We're holy people. We're clergymen. <laughs> of course, Jesus was too. A very different kind, however. They murmured against his disciples, saying, Now, if I read this correctly, they are speaking only to the disciples. Perhaps it was in the courtyard of an ancient house, uh, and the uh, aristocratic homes uh, were quite a spread. They had a huge courtyard in the middle, exposed to the daylight and the nightfall. And that's where they had their gatherings. They put a fire in the middle. People would go around it. And then there were, was a house kind of spread on all four sides around that courtyard area. There's probably a lot of people. And Jesus was with the tax collectors and the sinners, and they saw them. And the scribes and the Pharisees are not speaking to Jesus. The conversation is between the religious folks and the disciples. So you would think Jesus isn't even hearing this conversation. And I'm sure it blew their minds when Jesus responded to their whispers to the disciples. Because they're murmuring. Why, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? <laughs> and Jesus answered. And I just sort of picture him. I, I picture them murmuring on the other side of the courtyard. And then Jesus, you know, <clears throat> I heard that. Because he's God. He knew their thoughts. He said, those that are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. Now, as you know, the Pharisees and the scribes were very narrow-minded how did they evangelize? Anybody know? How did they evangelize? They evangelized like this. They walked around pointing their little bony fingers at people, saying, why do you do this? Why do you do that? You're not as righteous as I am. You shouldn't be doing that. And they just turned people off. Now, here's Jesus, the Son of God, sitting with a bunch of tax collectors, a rough crowd. And these clergymen, these righteous people, are noticing it. Jesus gives them an answer. He's saying, you know what? You guys are right. I agree with you. These people, these tax collectors and sinners, they're sick. They need a doctor. And I'm making a house call. I'm a specialist. You see, there's a disease called sin. And everybody's plagued with it. And unless that disease is cured, men are lost forever. And I happen to be a specialist in that, being the savior of the world. That's why he answers it this way. When he says to them, those who are well do not need a doctor, but those who are sick. You see his point? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So in one hand, he's saying, I am the great physician. But in saying that, he is implicating them. 
He's saying, you guys are quacks. You guys are quick as false physicians to point out the disease, but you offer no cure. I have not come to call the righteous, those that think they are righteous, but sinners unto repentance. What a different type of person this Jesus was. I am endeared to Jesus when I read stories like this, aren't you? I just get so excited. Because Jesus was different. Listen, a lot of people judge Christianity by Christians. That's a mistake. Judge Christianity by Jesus Christ. We're all sick. And this is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Though God calls us saints, we still need his help, right? Just like it would be folly if somebody said, when the banking scandals happened the last couple of years and that person pilfered all that money, that banking executive, how would this sound if I were to say, you know, see, you just can't trust those banks. You know, I'm going to pull all my money out and put cash under my bed. Just, I'll never trust a bank again. Why? Well, look at that. The guy said he was in charge of a bank and he messed up. That's how people look at the church. They find a flaw or they find a fallen minister. See, they're all a bunch of rip-offs. I can show you a lot who aren't. Don't judge Christianity by Christians, but by Jesus Christ. Now, at the same time, as Christians, we are reps. And people do make their evaluation on the kingdom of God by us. So don't throw all that out and say, yeah, see, I'll just tell people that next time when I'm a hypocrite. I'll say, don't uh, look at me, just look at Christ. But God uses us to be his ambassadors. But Jesus is just so refreshing. One of the greatest compliments I have received from people over the years, believe it or not, and they'll say, they'll look at me and they'll go, boy, you don't seem like a pastor. You don't, it's not what I expect, and I thank them for that. Because I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and I rejected authority, and I didn't like authority figures, and most of the ministers I met, I didn't like, I didn't want to be like. Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote, he admitted, he said, I thought I wanted to go into the ministry, and I would have become a minister, but I didn't because most of the ministers I knew reminded me of undertakers. You know, just sticks in the mud. That's the Pharisees and the scribes. Here's Jesus. Now, he's with the tax collectors and the sinners. He's not doing what they're doing. He's with them. He's in a party crowd. But he's not getting drunk with them. He's not gambling or whatever they were doing. He was with them. He was sharing his life with them. He was in their midst. That is the difference between the Pharisees way of evangelizing, and Jesus' method. Jesus would go with them. Our methods of evangelism, though they might be very polished and very refined, are often very intimidating to people. And if you're an unbeliever tonight, I know the feeling. I remember before I came a, became a Christian, I'd be around certain groups and think, this is kind of intimidating. That's why Jesus told his disciples, go into the world. Don't stand up there and demand that the world come to you. Go to them in their setting, in their midst, and love them and compel them 
Jesus did that. Matthew did that. The Pharisees just pointed their fingers. And then they said to him, the conversation continues, the focus is off the disciples, and now they're face to face with Jesus. They said to him, why do the disciples of John fast often and make many prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? Do you get the gist of this question? He's comparing their outward actions. You know, we've noticed something about Jesus, uh, you, Jesus, and your followers. They're always happy. That bothers us. Because we, and even John's disciples, fast often. And we make many prayers. You see, we go through all the pious works. I see here tonight, Jesus, just by the crowd you're with, that your disciples are kind of having fun. see what he said. Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. All right. Once a year, there was a mandatory day to fast. Yom Kippur. It was the high holy day, the day of atonement. And in the Old Testament, they called it the affliction of souls. God said, on that day you will afflict your souls. You will, and they understood that to mean you will fast. So one day a year was the only compulsory day to fast, Yom Kippur. There were very religious, pious Jews, the Pharisees principally, who thought, you know, if you really want to be righteous and holy, you ought to be fasting twice a week. Now I know that sounds like, man, you know, that's pretty good. You've got to at least applaud them for that. Every Monday and Thursday, the pious Pharisees would fast. Now, before you think, wow, these guys are really holy, it wasn't as bad as you think. They only fasted during daylight hours. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, which happened to be, and I don't think it just happened to be, I think it was planned that way, but it happened to be the market days. The biggest crowds came to town. It's like the mall opened only Mondays and Thursdays, and they would stand in the marketplaces. Often they would whiten their face with a cosmetic powder to look sort of pale and gaunt to identify them as fasting. So that when people would walk by, people would look at them and go, Wow, I notice him. You can't help but notice him. His hands are raised in front of the crowd. His face is white. (laughs) That was the idea. They were drawing attention to themselves. And it always bothers me in any religious setting or worship service to see a person try to draw attention so that everybody looks at that person. Look how holy that person is. Trying to get the attention of the crowd. And so Jesus referred to them. Don't be like the hypocrites when you fast. They disfigure their faces so that they appear to be fasting. You know what Jesus said? They've got their reward. It's a tragedy to go through all of those works and at the end have the judge say, I don't have anything for you. You got your reward. How did I get my reward? Everybody noticed you. 
Think of all the plaques that are in churches and universities donated by. Man, I would never let them do that if I gave a certain sum of money. I want my reward in heaven. I want to save it. Better to do your works without broadcasting it. Well, anyway, Jesus never condemned fasting. He simply said, look, the friends of the bridegroom are around. Those are going to come a day when the bridegroom will be taken away, and then they'll fast. Now, he's drawing a picture of a Jewish wedding and a honeymoon. A Jewish couple, when they got married, had no honeymoon like we know it. You know, people get married today and they plan, they go to Hawaii or Roswell or wherever. You know, they, they go off somewhere and they have a honeymoon. They get away from people. They spend it alone. In Judaism, it was the opposite. They would open their homes for a week after their wedding for all the friends to come and hang out. Now, I know that didn't sound romantic to you young couples. You're going, ah, forget that custom. But for the couple, it really was delightful because the labor was hard in those days. They were very earthy and close to the ground. They toiled. During that week was a week of feasting. People brought food over. Sometimes they put crowns on the couple's heads. And for a week, it was like the best week of their lives. It was a time of feasting. It was a time of uh, enjoyment, you know, partying with the friends. And the close, intimate friends that enjoyed that week of feasting were called friends of the bridegroom. It was a time of joy. Jesus is saying, there's going to be plenty of time in the future for these people to be afflicted. The bridegroom will be taken away. He's hinting now at his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And the persecution that he promised would come upon these disciples. But I love it. Jesus is saying to these guys, lay off. Let them enjoy it. Let them enjoy this time. Don't get down on them because they're not fasting like the disciples of John or the Pharisees. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Uh, my mom understood this. Um, there are some gals that understand this today. Uh, you know, today, you get a rip in your jeans, you think, oh, I'll get a new pair. My mom would put a patch on. But in these days, before the days of pre-shrunk clothing... You wouldn't put a piece of new cloth on something that had already been washed and had shrunken because you put a brand new patch on and that new patch is going to shrink much more than the clothing that has already shrunk around it. Hence, it will tear upon that garment and make the tear worse. That's the idea here. That's the analogy. We'll explain it in a minute. And also, the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst, the wineskins will be spilled, the wines, uh, the wine, uh, the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined, but the new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. No one having drunk old wine immediately desires the new, for he says, the old is better. New wine was put into new skins, literally the skins of animals. Because wine ferments, it gives forth gases, and gases produce pressure, and the pressure causes that, that thing to expand. An old wine skin has already expanded. It's reached its max, its limit. You put new wine in it, and the extra pressure 
will go beyond the quotient of elasticity of that unit. And it'll burst. It'll break. Jesus is speaking about the old wineskin and the old garment of this religious system. They had grown so hard and so stiff, they wouldn't bend anymore. They wouldn't get elastic anymore. They wouldn't be open to a fresh move of the Spirit. We have always done it this way, and we'll do it this way forevermore. And Jesus is saying, fine, I need a new wineskin then. And how often we have seen through church history where a great revival, a great church, a great movement comes on the scene. They're fresh. It's vital. And after a while, it becomes hardened. It becomes, we've always done it this way. These are our traditions. These are sacred traditions. And then they become so hardened to a fresh work of God. And when God wants to do a fresh work, the reformation process won't work in that, in that system. He goes outside of that wineskin and selects a new wineskin to house his work and pours his new wine into that. We must become flexible. Blessed are the flexible, they shall not be broken. And that can happen in any institution. You know, Martin Luther tried to reform the Roman church. And it's called the Great Reformation, but it was really a transformation. He was not able to stay within the confines of the church. He tried. He had to go outside of it. They pushed him out. John Wesley in the Church of England, same thing. They, they, they didn't want this renewal. They wanted things the way it would. Don't upset things. We don't want revival. It's too messy. Let's leave it the way it is. God said, fine, I want to do a work. If you won't be flexible, I'll find people that are. God help us. Any group of people is susceptible to this kind of thinking. We can't become too rigid. Now, you might come to our church and go, oh, you're not too rigid. You've got a cool band on Sunday night. And, yeah, but what happens if we say, well, for God to move, we have to have a cool band on Sunday night. You know, the times that I've had like a, a choral group or a choir, it's almost been a shock to people. As much as a rock band would be a shock to a church that has just a choir. It's like the reverse, you know, reverse shock. Why not? God enjoys all types of worship if it's done from the heart. Who says we have to do one thing for one group of people? Let's be flexible to what God wants to do. They weren't. The wineskin had become old. And uh, we only have five minutes. But we finished chapter 5. Now, you're going to watch something. Uh, Jesus spoke from his heart, laid the chips on the table, and did not make a lot of friends with these characters. And from here on out, Judaism will push Jesus out of their midst. He's in the synagogues, but he's in there sporadically. More and more, his ministry is going to be outside, the Sea of Galilee region, outside just among the sea and the boats and the hillsides of Galilee. Because formal Judaism had become a wineskin and God wanted to do a new work. He came into his own. His own received him not. Now what happened on the second Sabbath, that's the second Sabbath after the one that was just spoken about several verses ago in chapter 5, after the first, that he went through the grain fields, and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. It was perfectly lawful for them to do that. Deuteronomy chapter 23 said, When you reap your fields, leave the corners of the field so that the poor... The day laborer can walk through the fields, 
grabbed some with his hand, take the chaff away, let the wind blow it away, put it in his mouth and eat it. The only law was that you couldn't bring a sickle into the field and formally cut the grain and take it home. But whatever you could eat standing there, no problem. That's what the disciples were doing. The problem was it was the Sabbath. You say, why is that a problem? Let me back up. Can I? Can I just give a, a kind of a full orb picture? God created the Sabbath back in Genesis. It was the pattern of creation. God finished creation, and it says God rested on the seventh day. He didn't rest because he was tired. It wasn't like God said, Man, I'm beat. I need a vacation. When it says he finished and he rested, it means there was no more left for him to do in his plan and scheme. So it was over. God rested from his work because it was done. That became a pattern based upon creation. Six and one. Work six days. Cruise on the seventh. It cropped up again before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai while the children of Israel were walking through the desert. They got up one morning and looked outside, and there was this white stuff all over the ground. It was weird because it looked like snow. But this is the desert. This is Mount Sinai. It didn't snow down here, down in, in this part of the desert. You know, what is it? Mana. What is it? That's what manna means. What is it? So they looked outside, and what is it? And, and the name stuck. God said, six days you will gather manna. On the seventh day you will not gather it. You will gather enough on the sixth day for the sixth and the seventh day. If you try to... If you work on the seventh day, you know, you'll suffer the consequences. So that became a pattern. It was made for man to rest. Now, by the New Testament times, they had taken the Sabbath and they made it a work day. It was laborious to remember all the laws to keep it. It was a burden to keep the Sabbath. You had to really watch your step. In the Jewish Talmud were 24 chapters detailing what you could not do on the Sabbath. Man, that's laborious just to remember what's in there. You couldn't work on the Sabbath. The disciples had broken the law because they picked, they threshed and winnowed by doing this and letting the wind blow it away. That was winnowing. And the Jews said, if on the Sabbath you grab grain and put it between your hands and the wind blows it away, you have prepared a meal on the Sabbath. They had laden the Sabbath with dumb regulations. It had become a religious day of no consequence. That is why in Isaiah chapter 1, God is so angry with the way they have taken a beautiful day of rest as well as the feast days. And he says to the children of Israel, to what purpose are the multitude of your sacrifices to me, saith the Lord? I am weary of your feasts and your Sabbaths. And when you spread forth your hands, I won't even listen to you. Because they had taken this day of rest and the feast days and just had laden it with, and it really wasn't from their hearts. So, they're out in the grain fields. Some of the Pharisees said to them, how they got out there in the grain fields on the Sabbath, I still haven't figured that out. But why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? 
Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how we went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave to those who were with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? And he said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. I'd love to explain all that to you, but our time's up, and we'll explain it next week. But we will conclude with the thought that Jesus Christ is moved when he sees human suffering. The disciples were hungry. It was perfectly lawful. He didn't care about the man-made regulations. He allowed them to do it. We're going to see him next week in the synagogue. And in the synagogue, he sees a man with a withered hand, and he is moved with compassion. Just like he was moved with compassion when he saw a reject named Matthew. And I've got to believe that God is always restless whenever there's human suffering. And I believe that God tonight is restless over the events that have happened in Oklahoma City. God isn't standing by. I don't subscribe to the deist idea that God has created the earth and then stepped back and just watched it. He is very involved. And I think God is raising up his people. And I thought as I was watching Billy Graham on television, never would this be able to happen where the gospel is being preached on CNN around the world. And at the same time, my heart goes out to those who are suffering. And we need to lift them up in prayer. And we will, but I also know that some of you tonight are suffering, much like Matthew. You might be the kind of person who sits at the edge of the crowd, comes in, but goes way isolated from people. You come and you watch and you listen. You leave real quick. Inside your heart is saying, boy, I would love I'd love to be able to experience what these people all around here are experiencing. They seem so happy. These friends of the bridegroom, (laughs) they're so rejoicing. I'd love to experience that. But you see, I've got guilt. Well, you're you're in a great place tonight because there's a doctor who specializes in guilt and sin. And you can go to a psychiatrist and a psychologist and he can give you all sorts of dumb Freudian things of how you shouldn't feel guilty. You should. Guilt is a very good thing, but I encourage you to get rid of it. The best place for a guilt complex is at the cross because that's where sin is washed away. And God holds nothing against you if you come and admit, Lord, I failed. Would you receive me? I have a hunch that Jesus Christ is pointing his finger gently at some of you tonight who have come so close and you've heard lots of messages like Matthew but you've never really come and laid your life down before Jesus Christ. And I have a hunch Jesus is saying, follow me. And he wants you to leave all and come to him. He wants you to leave all and come to him. He wants you to leave all and come to him. He wants you to leave all and come to him. He wants you to leave all and come to him. He wants you to leave all and come to him.